The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very warm welcome everybody. You're watching Sportbox in the headlines. The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq hit fresh record highs as the market focus turns to the virtual Jackson Hole Summit for signals on the Fed's tightening path. Meanwhile, South Korea's central bank has hiked interest rates for the first time in three years, becoming the first developed economy to do so during the pandemic era. The SEC reportedly opening an investigation into DWS after a former executive of Deutsche Bank's asset management business says the unit overstated its sustainable investment criteria. And just one month ago until Germany elects a new chancellor, with the latest polls putting the Conservatives and SPD in a dead heat. We'll be live in Berlin throughout the morning. Uh, so, a very warm welcome, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Very good. Uh, so, we've got a lot to talk about here, particularly about interest rates and the Federal Reserve. So, let's plough straight in on the story and maybe, maybe we'll have time for a chat oh. if the producers say we can. We're at the wall now. They can't stop us. They can't stop us. <laughs> uh, Federal Reserve officials are preparing to meet virtually for this year's Jackson Hole Summit with Fed Chair Jerome Powell scheduled to give his speech tomorrow. Investors, of course, will be watching for any hints on the central bank schedule to taper asset purchases and, of course, potentially to start talking about lifting policy rates. Well, U.S. consumer price inflation was at its highest level since June, uh, sorry, July 2008. But the central bank has to balance its response to that with the rapidly spreading Delta variant. And We've got another market high here. So what is this, the 51st or something like that? The S&P, 51st closing high. Closing high year to date. And every time we get a pullback here, there are new buyers who are willing to step in in spite of perhaps some of the messaging that's being sent around this inflation data. And as the Fed continues to make the case that it believes that this will be a transitory effect here. So given that we've had so many closing highs, you know, I was scratching around this morning to try and find something new to bring to the table. And I'm not sure this is new for everybody, but my friends who like to draw lines with rulers on charts are talking a lot. Accountants? No, technical analysts. Oh, right, sorry. uh, Are talking a lot about 34 years ago, Mm. the peak for the 1987 market. I'm glad you told me it was 87. I was trying to work it out. Was, uh, <laughs> was, um, I know it's early, isn't it? First hour. It takes a little bit longer for the cogs to start moving. But the peak in that cycle for the market in 1987 yeah. was obviously an important year for market historians. Mm. The peak was Wednesday, the 25th. 1987. So basically it was yesterday. Right. And what we've just achieved is another closing high on the S&P 500. And then as we know through the rest of 1987, things got a little more difficult. And uh, a lot of the selling, of course, came in in October. But ultimately it became a very important year for those who uh, at probably at that peak in 
1987 on the 25th Wednesday, we're looking at it and going, well, hey, we can only go onwards and upwards from here on in. This market's building a strong base to move forward. Of course, this is not predicting the future, but um, it is interesting to look back on some of these historic momentum-driven markets and try and work out if there are similarities here uh, around other macro conditions. And of course, that's what's got many of the technical analysts excited because they are looking at the potential risk here for policy mistakes. And of course, over the next few days, we're going to hear how sure-footed the Fed and other central bankers think they are when it comes to managing these macro conditions. I mean, look, the, the inflation mandate has been met, presumably, for... Uh, a, a rate hike, uh, several rate hikes, a tapering uh, more aggressively than the chat we're having about it at the moment. When I look at that chart on the right-hand side, I see 5.4% increase in inflation. Even if they think most of it's transitory, surely somewhere within that, a 2% target pretty much has been met as the mandate. The one that they're not so sure about is the one I'm looking at, and that's where they need to see substantial further progress as opposed to they've only seen progress. Uh, and this is the point. The Fed has said it will not withdraw stimulus until the job market has made, oh, it's there, exactly the words I found. It's genuine, I didn't know it was there. Substantial further progress towards its goal of maximum employment. Is the Fed choosing quite pointedly the data it looks at? Well, the answer is yes, of course. It's looking at certain data, including July's non-farm payrolls, which exceeded economists' expectations, with 943,000 new jobs added. But it's only one part of the equation. And the part that the Fed likes to remind us is that there are still circa 10 million Americans who uh, were not on some form of government assistance program, who are now on some form of government assistance program because of the pandemic, because of the tumultuous economic and social and devastating events we've seen over the last 18 months. But there is counter evidence and the Fed knows there's counter evidence out there as well. And you see it pretty much everywhere as well, including the fact that, uh, do you know the average earnings in the States and the most mm. recent figure, or the June figure, I should say, probably not the most I, I saw yeah. was, you know, we talk a lot about the, uh, uh, the, 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 the federal minimum wage and you know, how many, many administrations have failed to get it over a, a seven bucks something level, uh, up to 15 bucks and what have you. But the actual uh, average salary in the United States now is about 3.6% higher on the June figure, and it was $30.4. Mm. $30.4. We spent a lot of time talking about the minimum wage, about warehouse workers, about government uh, programs and the government um, employee rates at the low end. But actually, 30.4 bucks per hour. It sounds relatively respectable as well. Yeah. Other data, the jolt state. When we look at this a lot as well, there's over 10 million vacancies out there in the United States which is a very familiar number because we just mentioned about 10 million on government assistance programs. There are 10 million vacancies out there at the moment. And, and the third bit of data, and this is more anecdotal, but there are some people who try to put a number on it. How many of those Americans who are not in work are actually trying to find work at the moment? Those ones who are on government assistance programs? And the answer is actually not all of them. Now, again, you end up in very murky territory here, very difficult socially because you talk about furlough cash as well or assistance cash. So some of them uh, just economically don't want to go back to work to their old jobs or actually aren't looking actively for jobs at the moment. And actually, it's a very low percentage, according to some of the data, somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of a lot of those people who are actually looking for work at the moment. So it's not as mm. clear cut as there are 10 million Americans out there. Who, who do want jobs, who can't find jobs as well. And I think that's a very important point. And, and that's a problem for the policy 
approach that the Fed is taking, and I'll just throw this out here. We, we have two people now leading uh, the, um, the, 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 the uh, U.S. economic department, if you like, the government's economic department, who was at the central bank, who yep. is a labor economist. Yes. And basically, Jay I'm Powell... Like the chair of the, uh, the Federal Reserve, who's not an economist. No, he's not, but he's thrown his hat into the ring and he's basically gone along with the labor economists. And we are now trying to understand the Fed's forward guidance based on data that is always at least a month old when it comes to the jobs market. And I don't understand how, if the Fed wants to be on the curve or ahead of the curve, how it can be if it's relying on such unreliable data that we're getting. Because as you say, the um, intentions of employees at the moment in the United States is unclear. If they are looking for a job, do they actually want a job now? Have they voluntarily taken themselves out of the job market because they can't find the job they want? Or are they not looking for a job because they're still happy to rely on federal assistance and they'll wait maybe until the end of the year when those paychecks Which is a very Republican argument. So we have to be careful about wading into yeah. uh, Capitol Hill territory on that one as well. But Absolutely. it just makes it difficult, I think, for us to buy in to any policy yeah. announcements my, at this My point. problem as a journalist is... Uh, and we've been around for you and I. You mentioned 1987. You, know, yeah. you and I wouldn't get much change out of that 34-year period for months we haven't been in and around markets. And the thing is, one that seems very clear to you, the audience, and to us two with a few years' experience as well, is that there is a degree of ambiguity, of opacity about what we're seeing on the economic data. I hope we've shown you that in the last 10 minutes or so. But the point is, according to the Fed, there is no ambiguity, is there? When you look at what their policies are at the moment, you look at their level of interest rates, you look at the level of tapering, that would say to you unequivocally that actually this, this economy needs a vast amount of support. Now, again, I'll just add one more question. Does the market need that support or is it the economy that needs that support? I don't have an answer. Multiple Fed decision makers have told CNBC over the past weeks that the central bank is nearing the sweet spot to start tapering. Here you go don't need all the tools as we see the economy get its own footing. So absolutely time to start doing that, having those conversations. My own view is we'll probably be in a good position to taper at the end of this year or early next. If the jobs reports come in, as I think they're going to in the next two reports, then in my view with tapering, we should go early and go fast uh, in order to make sure we're in position to raise rates in 2022 if we have to, I'm not saying we would, but if we wanted to, we need to have some policy space by the end of the year. It would be my view that if the economy unfolds uh, between now and our September meeting, if it unfolds the way I expect, uh, I would be in favor of announcing a plan at the September meeting and beginning tapering in October. If we get another strong labor market report, I think that I would be supportive of announcing in September that we are ready to uh, start uh, the, the taper program. Right, great look at these markets. Jeff said in the headlines, already record levels. We're only up by decimals, though, yet. I mean, small decimals as well. Look on the right-hand side, 0.1.22.15 as well, the gains for the major three U.S. markets. Uh, Jeffrey and I were pontificating, ruminating, cogitating uh, every day, but also looking at the Treasuries. Before we came to it. Yeah, it's good to say those words. It clears the pipes a bit, doesn't it? Anyway, we were talking about the 10-year yield, and I came in with the 126.7 level of the 10-year. It's now 133 points. Do you know we've gone so long yeah. that we almost lost our guest? Uh, is he back? I'm told he's back. Okay. 
Cole Smead, president and portfolio manager of Smead. Wow, look at that. A young man in a bow tie. Got to be pretty swanky to pull that one off at this time in the morning, Cole. Good morning to you, my friend. Um, what do you morning, think? You've been listening to a large amount of our uh, rumination at the wall as well. Is the Fed being too unequivocal uh, with its analysis of the market or is it more nuanced, do you think? Well, I think about what we came into this. The Fed was expecting into the pandemic that we were going to have incredibly tepid demand and ample supply. Okay, Walking out of this, and they used the same policy prescription in so many ways that was used back in 0809, flood the system with liquidity and make it very cheap for the system as well. Now, what we actually have as the problem coming out of the pandemic is ample demand. In fact, I would say demand, unlike we've seen in the last 30 years in the economy of the United States, or in some cases, the world. Um, with the weakest supply we've had in that whole period, okay? So um, what I love about this is people are, they have not modeled for this problem whatsoever. To your guys' point, um, it really begs the question of liquidity. And I, a, a great book that I read a couple years ago was uh, Jim Grant's book on Badgett, the, who was the modern father of the Bank of England. And he pointed out that the central bank should always be the lender of last resort. But the question he argued was at what price? And we haven't argued that. And what that looks like is that's kind of let Pandora's uh, box open up. And the question is, can we tamp the inflation that's in places like housing and rent that is running double digits right now? And if you look at CPI, it's being fairly underreported in those measures. So in terms of this, um, let's go straight back to the markets, if I may, Cole. What is the ramification for the markets of all of this if indeed there is a day of reckoning? Yeah, it's a great question. The interesting part, Steve, is if you look at the most cyclical businesses, they've benefited the most from this. Okay, For example, if you have cars and you're short on chips, what do you do with the cars that you are printing out right now on, on shortened chips? Well, you raise price. The industries that have the longest supply chain leg have the best pricing power right now, which is one of the oddest phenomena I've seen looking back you know, in my entire career. Um, to your point, you, you guys, I think if you guys were around in 87, you must have gotten this business when you were 12. Um, but what I love about this is like Unilever, you guys saw them report here in the last couple of months. Um, they can't pass on price right now. They're seeing 8% input increases. That should be a staple that they can just raise price immediately. But with so many workers and citizens on, um, in effect, a safety net, there's not pricing power in staple businesses today like the past. Cole, if I can just take you back to bash up for a moment, um, the rule from 1873 or thereabouts largely was that the lender of last resort should be able to figure out which of the institutions is ultimately insolvent and which of them mm -hmm. ultimately just has a liquidity problem. As you look at the market Correct. at the moment, given the largesse that we've seen both fiscally and monetarily, can you tell which businesses are insolvent and which ones have just a liquidity problem? Well, it, it, it's, it's such a, it, it's, it's tough to paint a broad brush on that, uh, to be honest, Jeff. Um, let, me, let me give you an example. Think back to the spring uh, during the pandemic. The oil business looked like a total nightmare. Balance sheets look terrible. Cash flows are questionable. Earnings, only God knows. Now you wake up in a situation where you've had the biggest undersupply of new oil whether it be through policy or just capital allocation, you have groups like BP saying, you know, we might want to get rid of our oil assets and just have our new energy company kind of be our, our main child going forward and spin off the rest. So you, you have a lot of these places that are asset related. And if you're thinking about it in dollar terms, you've never been able to buy so many assets in dollar terms. 
with some of these kind of things. And why that's interesting is because if inflation or or um, those kind of problems rear their head, you have these assets and you still have no competition in those spaces, and you're waking up on higher prices to replace those assets. That looks like a wonderful phenomenon. In many ways, it's the opposite of the asset light era that we've just walked out of, which is that you didn't need capital to do a lot of these amazing things in the world. And the problem is we have too much capital today. And that's why the era ahead is probably going to destroy capital. So, so where are you putting money at the moment, Cole? Let's, um, let's get to the heart of it. Where do you think there's still opportunity yeah. to make money, even though you don't like the broad market? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, I mentioned asset businesses. Uh, we are sitting five to six fold times uh, the S&P 500's energy weight right now in our portfolio. That's in names like Continental Resources, which are our largest holding, ConocoPhillips, and Chevron. We do have a fourth name that, that, that's going to show here in the next however many days in our public disclosures. Um, we couldn't be more bullish. Uh, if, you, if you wanted to kind of get a picture of my excitement on the subject, I just imagine Matthew McConaughey squawking and pounding his chest, and I'm staring at Continental Resources while I do it. It's it, this is such a good era in that business. And there are so many other tones and stories and themes that tone it, like ESG with what you guys have heard the discussion with BP in terms of green alternatives, the politics of it. And the nice thing that remains, though, is there's just no new competition. And people think the decline of the business is going to be way quicker. Okay, So great economics, no competition. We're sitting at $70 of oil. I, people did not think we'd be here, just like people didn't think we'd be talking about tightening 60 days ago either. And that's kind of the beautiful part. It's shocking people all the way. We've got to say goodbye, Cole, but it's been a pleasure catching up. Thanks for waiting for us. Cole Smead, President and Thank Portfolio you, Manager at Smead Capital Management. You wanted to come in? No. no? I just, oh, you just gave me that look. No, no, I, well, I did. No, I, I, I did <clears throat> want to come in. I thought, no, I won't bother. But I was thinking oh. about great Matthew McConaughey movies. Yeah. He, I mean, it's well, we he, talked about The Gentleman, didn't we? Oh, my goodness Which is just me. a terrific That is a uh, fantastic film. film. Uh, Hugh yeah. Grant, Michelle Dockery. Yeah. I mean, all playing kind of atypical roles, aren't yes. they, as well? Yes. Um, um, Gold? Gold. Yeah, he's brilliant. Yeah. Was he in um, True Detective as well? He's the original series. I think he was. Apparently the director says. Oh, we, we don't have director audio again today. I thought we might fix it. But I thought the boss wanted it. I thought the boss thought demanded the boss, it, especially yeah. the expletives when they when they get the wrong board up. Uh, we're going to bring you a slew of interviews from the Jackson Hole Summit, starting with the St. Louis Fed uh, President James Bullard and Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan today. Tomorrow, uh, more discussions with regional Fed heads. We'll also talk to IMF Chief Economist uh, Gita Gopinath. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see the differences between some of the key players. You know, I mean, sometimes you can't see the differences between the likes of I mean, Kaplan and uh, Harker. No, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, coming up on the programme, the Bank of Korea lifts interest rates from record lows. Despite the recent spike in COVID cases, we'll have more when we come back. Did you hear that the uh, the podcast has been um, uh, put forward for a Pulitzer this time? No, not really. But it's a good one anyway. Uh, more on the build-up to the Fed Chair Jerome Powell's Jackson Hole speech. Uh, check out the Squawkbox podcast. It may not be Pulitzer, but it's not bad. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts.
So, uh, as we were discussing with Martin Ratz from Morgan Stanley yesterday, um, had you looked at the oil market pretty much today, a week ago? I mean, Jeff's going back to 1934 for comparisons. I can go back for a week. Here you go. That's about my, 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 mem- my memory. Uh, and, and we were down. We were down aggressively. And everyone was queuing up to tell us why the oil market was rightly priced at 65 bucks. We're $72. We got up to $72. We have put on over 10% in the last week. Isn't that phenomenal? In fact, not even last week, this week, in the week today. We're only on Thursday. It's been an extraordinary turnaround as well, really. Uh, and if you're looking for catalysts, well, I guess the lower price is often, as we were talking about with the underlying stock market, often a catalyst as well. But in this case, I think it was about the Chinese um, COVID cases. I really do, because as we know, the Asian buyer, the Asian consumer, the Asian economy, and I say Asian, it's it's a vast, vast area with a huge differential. But the point is, that is the X factor for a lot of these energy markets. Cut a long story short, we're seven bucks higher. It's amazing. Dollar crosses. Let's have a look at those as well. Uh, dollars uh, rallied a percent last week. And that is the other point as well, actually, I should say, is the fact that the dollars come off exactly before today's session, 0.7 of 1% on the dollar index, if my memory serves me correctly, this week. So the dollar going down, again, another boost for the commodities as well. Uh, cable 137.57, euro dollar 117.66, dollar yen 109.96, and dollar yuan 6.4817. Uh, Asian indices, uh, is there much reaction to, uh, in fact, what a shame, we haven't got the sole market up here as well. We'd be interested to see whether there was any reaction on the next one, we go, oh, that's one. Oh, Katie's at least three steps ahead of me here because I was all, oh, interesting things in, in, in the Asia Pacific region at the moment. Of course, the South Korean uh, interest rate move. But anyway, Nikkei flat, Hang Seng down 1.2 uh, and 0.6 of 1%. Do you want to uh, add colour to Katie's brilliant production rundown? Yeah, let me uh, just read what it says on the auto queue here. South Korea's central bank has raised interest rates for the first time in almost three years. The Bank of Korea hiked the benchmark rate by 25 basis points from record lows to 0.75%. This despite the recent spike in COVID-19 cases in the country. The governor, uh, Lee Ju-yol, said further hikes will depend on the pandemic situation and the Fed's policy stance in the United States. And that's a very interesting reminder of how closely many of these Asian currencies are connected to the US dollar, either through some kind of dirty float or by dint of the fact that they are all massive exporters into the United States and therefore, in terms of trade, need to get their hands on dollars or need to find a place to park those dollars. Well, tomorrow we'll bring you a rare interview from India when Tanvir speaks exclusively to the RBI governor, uh, Shakti Kantadar. Uh, Don't miss that interview on CNBC. Uh, China has accused the U.S. of politicizing the research into the origins of coronavirus. Uh, Beijing's foreign affairs ministry said, quote, scapegoating China cannot whitewash the U.S. This comes ahead of the release of an American intelligence report on the origins of the virus. Sam has the story. 
China has slammed the US as politicizing the origin tracing efforts of COVID-19 as a new US intelligence report on the virus is expected to be released to the public soon. Now, President Biden's already been briefed on the classified report, but parts of it are expected to be declassified. Now, this was ordered about 90 days ago to sort out disputes among intelligence agencies and the different theories around where the virus came from, including one that it was the result of a lab incident in China. But there's been some suggestion US officials aren't expecting any significant conclusions from this, partly because access in China has been a challenge for global experts trying to get to the bottom of this. Now, China has repeatedly denied that this is the result of a lab leak and has been pushing its own theories that the virus may have started outside its borders and is now demanding that American labs be investigated, saying it's only fair. It says that scapegoating China cannot whitewash the US. Chinese state media has also been playing a big role in shaping the narrative here. An editorial in the Global Times accusing the US government of making groundless accusations targeting China, as well as concocting rumours and a defamation campaign. There has been some suggestion that the report would likely contain additional lines of inquiry that the US could go down, which would only likely exacerbate tensions between the two sides. In Singapore, I'm Sam Bardis. Back to you. Many thanks, Sam. Right, let us uh, move on. The US uh, could start offering the COVID booster shot as soon as six months after the second dose, rather than eight months, as previously announced. This comes as the Biden administration steps up plans to deliver a third round of jabs to the public. Federal regulators could approve booster inoculations for all three coronavirus vaccines by mid-September. This, as Pfizer said, its booster shot offered three times the protection against virus as its second jab. Wow, I didn't know that they'd said that. Three times. Mm. That is extraordinary. Uh, the pharmaceutical giant is seeking... Reg- I suppose the question is how long that three times lasts because, you know, we're talking about a big tail-off, aren't we, uh, in the efficacy of these drugs as time goes on. But uh, the pharmaceutical giant is seeking regulatory approval by the end of this week. Uh, Lufthansa says it will now require its onboard crew to be fully vaccinated against coronavirus. The German airline says international flights will, quote, not be feasible in the future if staff are not fully jabbed. The carrier hoped to gain approval from its staff representatives before rolling out its policy. Its subsidiary Swissair has already said it will introduce the mandate from mid-November. And Delta Airlines says its employees who decline to be vaccinated will have to pay $200 more every month towards their corporate health care plan. The carrier says the extra charge will help address the financial risks associated with the employee's decision, as well as help stop the spread of the virus. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.